Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. I am all alone this week. Sharon, my podcast buddy, is currently travelling for work and unable to join us for this week's episode, and so I am flying solo. Please indulge that. The Policy Forum pod, of course, is based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University, and we're produced by policyforum.net. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study if you want to find out more about the amazing range of degree programs and short courses that are on offer through Crawford. And I'm particularly struck each week that we speak to extraordinary uh, experts in difficult policy areas and that you can find further information on each of the areas that we touch on when, when you visit the, the website for Crawford and particularly if you are interested in some further education there. We are in the middle of a series which we now recognise will be ongoing of systems under strain and we're currently focusing in on the healthcare sector. We've had two episodes so far. We spent time with Dr Claire Skinner and Dr Leslie Russell talking about the emergency department crisis and the challenge of hospital-based medicine uh, in Australia this year, uh, particularly through the context of COVID and, and the years beforehand. Last week's conversation with Dr. Louise Stone and Dr. Phil Kitely was an extraordinary one, uh, a really deeply affecting conversation, particularly thinking about the stress and strain on the healthcare sector, the real challenges in primary care, uh, and the way in which our mental health system is, is causing distress, I think, for healthcare workers and, and for a lot of patients and their families. It's a conversation that I'll certainly go back to and one that I've recommended to many people to listen to. So today we're going to continue the conversation around health policy. We're going to turn our attention to another area that I'm quite passionate about myself. It's often assumed that problems in healthcare are purely an, a result of underuse, that we don't have enough tests, enough doctors, uh, that we're not getting enough treatment. But according to work that is done around the world, particularly through an organisation called Choosing Wisely, there is strong evidence that there's overuse within our system, that there's unnecessary care, and that the unnecessary care and the overuse leads to harm and poorer outcomes for patients. In one study of New South Wales public hospitals in 2016 to 2017, 
Researchers found that between 11 and 19% of instances across 27 procedures were low value. Arguments for changing this aren't simply about waste, but for patients, these unnecessary tests and procedures can lead to harms, including the procedural risks, unnecessary treatment, unnecessary stress and distress around uh, diagnoses that will not be consequential. It's a complex area of healthcare, but one that really does deserve quite a lot of our attention, particularly as we look at the healthcare system that's under strain. So today on the pod, we want to talk about why low-value care has become such an issue in our healthcare system and how we can reframe the debate so that patients and meaningful relationships are at the centre of all that we do as healthcare workers. So with us today, we have two fabulous guests, and I will get them to both introduce themselves. Maybe we'll start with you, Kylie Woolcock. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Thanks, Anna Greta. Uh, yes, I'm the CEO of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Uh, we're the peak membership body. Our members uh, come from the public and not-for-profit hospitals and healthcare services. Uh, we're quite unique, I guess, in the not-for-profits, uh, sorry, in the peak body space in that we don't represent any one part of the system, but we're really interested in how the system works together um, to deliver the uh, best outcomes for Australians. Fantastic. And beside Kylie is Rochelle Bookbinder. Rochelle, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience as well? Yeah, thank you, Anna Greta. I, I'm a rheumatologist, uh, an academic rheumatologist and clinical epidemiologist, uh, and I work at Monash University uh, in Melbourne and I'm a clinician also at Cabrini Health. Uh, I'm also an NHMRC investigator fellow, and my area of research uh, is really around trying to reduce low-value care uh, and more recently uh, also interested in carbon-neutral healthcare as well. Rochelle, you also wrote a book, I think, in the last year or so, and you're very welcome to give that a plug if you'd like to at the beginning or the end of the, today's conversation. What sort of stuff have you written about? Yes, yeah, so our book is called Hypocrisy, How Doctors Are Betraying Their Oath. And it's, it's based around, each chapter is around the Hippocratic Oath, their pledge in the oath, uh, outlining much of what you were talking about uh, in the introduction, uh, low-value care and, and why it's happening uh, and, and some thoughts on how we can perhaps address it. And importantly, it's written, uh, it's written with Ian Harris, who's an orthopaedic surgeon in Sydney, and it's written for a lay audience because while doctors and healthcare providers might know of these problems, we don't think that it, it's well enough out there in, in the public domain. So that's probably a great place to start today's conversation. Rochelle, can you talk us through what low value and no value healthcare is? Sure. So it's been estimated uh, that about 30% of healthcare is low value. And another 10% is actually harmful. Uh, there are many reasons for low-value care, but, but we sort of describe it in terms of too many tests, uh, over-diagnosis, over-treatment, uh, and the definitions of, of things like over-diagnosis and over-treatment are that the diagnosis or the treatment will not uh, help the the person in their lifetime. So it might be a correct um, diagnosis, but, but treating that diagnosis isn't going to help people and in some instances it's going to harm people. 
I was just wondering whether you'd like to give us some examples in practice. Where are the common places that we find low-value or no-value healthcare? So in my field of uh, rheumatology or musculoskeletal healthcare, there are many, many examples. Uh, so we know, for example, that imaging people with non-specific low back pain is not needed for most people. So we only image if we're worried about serious causes. Uh, yet we know, despite uh, all our efforts over many years, that that people are still getting imaging, and in fact, imaging rates are rising. And uh, not only are they getting simple images like x-rays, they're getting MRI scans and CTs. And the problem is that most of the changes that we see on these images are just normal age-related changes, uh, but they're misinterpreted and acted upon. Uh, and some of those uh, can cause serious downstream harm. So you might you might operate on someone with degenerative changes thinking it's the cause of their back pain uh, and then you might get complications from that surgery. So that's an extreme example. Um, but it also worries the patient. Um, it costs a lot of money. In some scans like CTs cause irradiation, which is harmful, and it doesn't actually benefit the patient. They just end up more confused than ever. So, so that's one example, but there are many examples from um, screening for cancer and picking up um, cancers that will never harm the person in their lifetime. Uh, it happens um, with diagnoses where the, the disease definition has been broadened. So a, a good example is gestational diabetes uh, or diabetes that occurs in pregnant women. Uh, so the definitions have been widened, so more people get diagnosed, more women get diagnosed as having gestational diabetes, which means more tests, maybe more treatment. But we know that the outcome for both the mother and the baby is is not different. So they've all been unnecessarily diagnosed and, and managed. Uh, and then it also occurs in developing in uh, I identifying new diseases and in my area uh, it's things like sarcopenia which is now a ICD coded diagnosis and it basically means weak muscles as you get older uh, and I would argue that it's a, just a normal part of aging. Uh, so there are a few examples and there are many examples across all of medicine. So listeners know that I'm a clinical cardiologist and I spend quite a lot of time working with patients. It's the dominant activity for me in a week. Uh, and I see this regularly in cardiology over diagnosis and, and people who have things done in a way that doesn't make a meaningful difference. And the two metrics I often focus on as a clinician are impacts, so tests or procedures that either improve quality of life or improve life expectancy. And I wonder how good we are as a profession at talking about those two metrics when we're, when we're thinking about tests or we're thinking about treatment or we're thinking about using labels of diagnosis. Thinking about this from a patient perspective, patients can on occasion expect tests and, and be looking for diagnoses for their problem. Um, and so it's often, it's part of the doctor-patient dynamic is the need for investigation and the need for discussion. What role does low-value and no-value care play in that dynamic between doctors and their patients? Well, I think it's very important. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I think that patients increasingly expect tests and expect to find a cause and expect treatment. And, and they don't well understand the 
the, I guess, the segue between doing a test and, and causing harm. So patients think that the decision about what to do starts after they have the the test done. Uh, so, so that's something that's really hard for patients to understand that actually doing the test in itself can be harmful. Um, and I think that uh, in terms of our relationship, it's often easier to, to do a test than to talk to the patient about why it's unnecessary and why it might actually cause more harm than good. Um, and I'm not blaming the patients at all. I think it's, it's, it's the system and it's doctors and that have created that expectation that we can fix everything. Uh, and, and patients don't really appreciate that you only do a test if you, if it's going to change the diagnosis, change your management, uh, understand the prognosis better. And I don't think doctors understand that very well either. Uh, and so it's a problem for doctors as well as for patients. Kylie, I wanted to bring you in here maybe to reflect on the role that low-value and no-value healthcare plays in the hospital sector and in the healthcare system more broadly. What what do you think is the impact? What what effect does, does the, the high prevalence of, of low-value, no-value care have? Yeah, look, I think uh, one of the, the uh, areas where people often might think that this is about trade-offs and I think what's really important, which has come through from Rochelle, is that it's... It, that these aren't trade-offs, that this is what is best for the patient, it's best for clinicians, it's best for, you know, the purse, it's best for um, the environment. And so really seeing this is there isn't a harmful effect to to making the right decisions in these cases. Um, but I, I guess we take it, you know, even a step further is even not looking at individual tests and individual decisions as thinking about the whole care pathway as well and the potential for saving um, or not using resources uh, in hospitals if we can redesign care pathways to allow people to stay at home, um, to, um, you know, think about how do we um, reduce admissions and readmissions, how do we, um, you know, embed virtual care or different workforce models um, which will also support reduced admissions. But again, be what's best for people in the communities, be best for um, clinicians and be best for the, the bottom line, I guess. So perhaps what, what we should reflect on is why this has become such a significant problem, the, the low value, no value care that is, you know, it's potentially 40% of our healthcare system time that is occupied with, with, res, with resources and uh, investigations and procedures that don't contribute meaningfully to quality of life or life expectancy. So, so how has it become such a significant issue? I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you on this. I think one of the fundamental things is science literacy of clinicians. Uh, and we know that clinicians tend to overestimate the benefits of what they're doing and they underestimate their harms. Uh, we, I, we know that clinicians tend to believe their personal experience over the evidence. And when it comes to the evidence, if, if it doesn't conform with their expectations, they'll dismiss it and they'll find many reasons for why the evidence isn't, doesn't apply to them or their patients. So I think we have a really fundamental issue with, with evidence, uh, and science literacy. And, and that, that is like where my area of interest lies. I don't understand why, why it is such a problem. Um, we, we do teach it in undergraduate. We do treat it, teach it in CMA, 
but it's not well understood, particularly by um, in terms of doing tests and, and doing procedures, I guess. I think there are some areas of medicine where people are much more evidence-based than others. We have this thing about miracle thinking. Uh, there are issues around if if conservative treatment fails, then you have to have surgery, even if the surgery has been proven not to be effective. So these are these sort of faults in logical thinking. Um, I think it's in our interest to believe that whatever we do works and it's in the interest of patients to trust and, and believe that what we're doing is in their best interests. Um, but I think we have to really stop uh, and and it's incumbent on both clinicians and patients to ask questions. What, why am I having this? Do I really need it? What would happen if I do nothing? What would happen? What are the other alternatives could I do it later? Um, what are the potential risks as well as the harms? And importantly, and something I don't think is well discussed, is what's the evidence that this treatment will actually benefit me? And in many of the trials that we do where we find things don't work, the, the, the bottom line is the clinician will, if they're going to offer that treatment, they need to tell the patient, well, actually, I think you should have this, but the evidence from trials showed that it actually doesn't work and it might harm you then I think if you told that to a patient, they wouldn't want that treatment. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons we wrote the book is that we want patients to ask more questions. Absolutely. I mean, there are a large number of areas, in fact, in medicine where the evidence base is not gold standard, where we don't have great quality randomised double-blind controlled trials to inform those clinical decisions. And sometimes the recommendations we do are on expert clinical consensus as opposed to any sort of scientific basis. It's complex territory for clinicians and for patients. Kylie, I'm interested in why the healthcare sector um, can, continues, I guess, we're not, not that we're allowing it to take place, but we know even within our public hospital and our not-for-profit sector that low-value, no-value healthcare occupies quite a lot of time and resources. Are, are there drivers, do you think, within the system that, that are perpetuating this that need, need some consideration? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, I think, um, and the Productivity Commission released their report last month, which really highlighted that innovation in service industries such as healthcare, which are very dependent on government regulation and funding, it's that diffusion of ideas and the adapt uh, and being able to adapt business models, which is a real problem in the health sector. And I think that we're really seeing that with low value care. Um, it is such an enormous system that's influenced in so many ways uh, and our funding models, for one, really drive activity uh, or incentivise activity over the outcomes that we're actually achieving. And it will require a whole range of, of partners to come together to, to shift the way we do that. I suspect we should just pause on that for one second. Could you describe what activity-based funding means in practice and, and how, how common is it across the health system? Yeah, so I mean, I guess in its, its simplest form is that you get paid to deliver a service. Um, it's not linked to the outcome that's achieved, and so the more services you provide, the more money you get paid. Uh, and I think the challenge with that is, on one hand, you do want people to be paid for the services they provide. Um, the viability of services depends on it. Um, but you also need to have a mechanism by which you can identify when services are provided that are not necessary. Um, and, and I think that's the challenge that the system is sitting in at the moment. 
And so that might lead us to wondering why low-value, no-value healthcare has been difficult to address. And, and I often wonder whether the financial drivers are a dominant factor here. Kylie, what are your thoughts on, on why we have failed to reduce low-value, no-value healthcare with, with the attempts that have been um, undertaken so far? Yeah, look, I think funding is one of the elements. Um, I think, though, that also data and the availability of data being in the right person's hands at the right time to actually influence their decision is a really big factor as well. Uh, we have a lot, we collect a lot of data in our health system and it's it's been really important for informing, you know, where do we direct resources and how do we implement policies and are they working? But where we probably have not um, uh, progressed as far is, is in that relationship between clinicians and the patient at the time that they're providing care. How do we ensure that they can make decisions about care um, based on, you know, the actual information that's available. And there are a whole range of issues, again, that influence that from what is it that we're measuring. Again, we continue to measure activity. Um, what are the outcomes that actually matter that we should be measuring? Um, and how do we actually put those in the hands of people when we've got such a fragmented system in terms of, um, you know, our hospital system and primary health care if technology is not allowing um, our systems to talk to each other? Um, and that the data is not centred around people themselves. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole range of issues that need to um, be addressed, I guess, in, in terms of putting the right information in the right person's hand at the right time. <laughs> so um, we've got activity-based funding and then we've got the way, well, the things that we're measuring and what might ma actually matter. Rochelle, I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah no, I was, I was going to say that, I mean, I don't think we've totally failed. Uh, <laughs> so I look at things like knee arthroscopy where the rates have, declined in Australia and other places. And if you look at a place like Finland, they've declined for knee arthroscopy, but they've also declined for arthroscopy at other sites. And so I think it's also about um, a tipping point where enough clinicians are, uh, are doing the right thing, um, believing in the evidence, and and their peers are seeing what they do, and, and that will – that creates a, a shift in in clinician attitudes uh, and then hopefully patient attitudes. Um, but that takes, you know, that takes a long time. And for some things, it's very quick. But for a lot of things, it, it's, you know, for very quick, I'm thinking of vaccination for COVID, for example, um, very quick. We, we, we did it all in a year or two, whereas things like arthroscopy, it's taken about 15 years before the first trial showing it didn't work for us to actually influence enough uh, orthopaedic surgeons to stop doing it. Um, I'm not saying it's disappeared and there's probably still too many being performed, but there's been this tipping point where people now know that it's not the appropriate thing for at least this type of problem. Um, and, and so I think we need to get the message to clinicians quicker, and, and but we need some drivers that will help them to do the right thing yeah. as well. So, Rochelle and Kylie, you've given me some glimmers of hope and uh, we're going to take a really quick break now. We'll come back after the break and we will flesh out our solution framework. 
late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm here with Kylie Wilcock and Rochelle Bookbinder talking about low-value, no-value healthcare and looking, beginning to flesh out some of the remarkable opportunities, I think, for health system transformation. And I, I'm remembering the conversation that we had last week with Louise Stone and Phil Kitely about mental health and about primary care and particularly the powerful conversation with Louise Stone about the mental health and well-being of healthcare workers, particularly through the last couple of years. This health system is in crisis as it stands and I think the opportunity for the transformative change that improves outcome not just for our patients but also for the healthcare working workers within the system is really important. And so I thought I might, we might start there reflecting on rates of burnout, which are estimated to be quite extraordinarily high in parts of our healthcare sector, um, and wondering whether there's any relationship here between the waste that's in our system and some of the perverse incentives that exist within our healthcare system and the impact that that has on the well-being and the, 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 the mental health for people who are working within that healthcare sector. Rochelle, do you think there's a relationship there or, or do you think these are unrelated factors? Uh, well, I mean, this isn't my area of, of extensive knowledge, but speaking personally, I, I think that, that there is a relationship. Uh, and even for me, when I see waste, I get upset. <laughs> and, you know, why am I why am I trying to, to push the wheelbarrow up the hill, um, you know, in, in my day-to-day practice? I see it all the time. And it's burning me out. So, so I can imagine that um, for others. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a frontline worker. I haven't been involved in COVID. I'm, I'm sure that that that's a factor as well. Um, we do see, um, you know, so much waste, so much low value care, uh, and and that just means that we're depriving people who do need care um, of our time and resources. I think. I think I think anecdotal evidence might be the best some of the best stuff that we have in this area and certainly clinically clinically uh, the work that I do when we used evidence-based practice and where you take a patient-centered view and we can work with patients in their family in achieving the things that matter to them that is it's it's rewarding for us personally uh, it's a tremendous professional privilege to be part of a caring relationship um, and I know that in, in my professional career that's been a big part of, of keeping keeping my health as good as I can 
And I'm really interested, Kylie, whether you think you can see this in the value-based healthcare framework, because I think we should move towards our solutions discussion. Um, do, do you think there are different ways to approach the provision of care, which care for both patients and for those looking after them? Yeah, like I think what you've said is, you know, it's really important to connect people to the purpose for them providing care. Um, and I think value-based healthcare provides that framework. I think the challenge that we're seeing at the moment is that, you know, is that through burnout, people, you know, change is hard. People need to have time to think about this. So we are going to, and we, we can't, um, you know, fix some of these health workforce shortages in a in a quick enough period to actually provide people with that space and time um, to really reflect on how they can do things differently. I would suggest that that means that we do have to be a little bit creative uh, and we need to really think about what tasks people are doing that they could provide, you know, give someone else to do. And it may not even be within the clinical workforce. It's about, you know, the non-clinical tasks that they can um, hand to someone else. Uh, and I think value-based healthcare provides a way of looking at that care pathway, thinking about the different elements that occur across that pathway, and also providing a sort of a supportive team environment because, as you mentioned, it's the support from your colleagues which is going to help you through the difficult times and, and really focus people on, well, how do we do this together given the outcome that we want to achieve? So, Kylie, let's get you to explain value-based healthcare. We've used the term a couple of times now on the pod, and we really should flesh that out. So could you explain what a value-based approach is within the healthcare sector and why that's different from our current model? Yeah, so uh, it was, a, a, it's a, a, I guess, a term that was coined by Elizabeth Teesberg and Michael Porter um, in the 90s, which was about thinking about healthcare in terms of the outcome, the improvement and outcomes for the resources or the costs and looking at an entire care pathway. So you're not looking at isolated experiences of, of healthcare, but thinking about a person's outcomes and experiences across that care pathway. It's obviously not a straightforward equation and it's not easy to measure. Um, and I think we need to be really conscious of that as we as we think about how do we actually implement uh, value-based healthcare because the more complex and chronic a condition is, obviously the harder it is to, to measure those outcomes and compare. I think one of the great risks we have in value-based healthcare is people jump straight to the cost side of the equation um, and start to think about it as, as an efficiency measure. Um, but I think the important thing is, is that we really do start thinking about healthcare in terms of outcomes for the person involved. Um, and in a universal healthcare such as Australia, we should be thinking about the, those outcomes for communities and ensuring um, equity as well uh, and thinking given we do have this fragmented healthcare system, how do we think about the whole care pathway so that, um, you know, the Commonwealth and the states working together in all manner of ways, whether it's the data, the funding, um, but really supporting that person-centred view. Do we have any examples of value-based healthcare in the Australian context that, that might be useful just to flesh out how it works in practice? Yeah, I think, well, one of the leading uh, services in Australia is Dental Health Services Victoria, um, and uh, they've certainly led a lot of work in this space. And I think when I, I look, and again, I'm not the person that was involved in that work, but when I, as an outside observer of how they have um, progressed this, it was very much about bringing clinicians and, and patients together around defining what those outcomes are as the first um, port of call. They're was a lot of work to do around workforce culture in terms of getting people to understand what it means to shift to a value-based healthcare model and that it's not about, you know, 
um, dismissing people's expertise in that. And I think it really highlights, again, the importance of clinician engagement and leadership in this space. Uh, It's not something that can be done without them. They're the people who can really identify where the clinical risk lies um, and where the the outcomes and uh, the best outcomes can be achieved. And I guess that comes down to, you know, how do we use our workforce better, you know, using people to work to the top of their scope um, and allowing them the space to utilise other people within their team. And that often then is dependent on how do we share information um, and how do we, you know, uh, have referral pathways or how do we have escalation pathways to ensure that the person's needs are actually being met. Rochelle, have you had any uh, exposure to value-based approaches? I'm particularly aware, I know there's research done on this in the United States on knee arthritis, osteoarthritis of the knee, um, and taking a value-based approach to that in conjunction with orthopaedic surgeons, but working with physiotherapists and, and other allied health professionals to look at alternative pathways for managing. Have you had any clinical experience or research experience with this? Yeah, so we, we've been, we've as part of a partnership centre grant that we have, we've been looking at alternative models of care that might be provide the same or better outcomes for patients but be more efficient. Uh, and we did a really large systematic review, um, a scoping review of about 330 models that have been studied. Most of them don't have evidence that that they're actually as good uh, and hardly any of them had any economic data. So I think we have to be really careful that we're not replacing one one model with another model that may not be as good in terms of outcomes for patients and may or may not be cheaper. So, so I think that, so whatever we do, if we're going to look at alternative models, I think we really have to understand whether what the evidence is about it and we have to study it in 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 a maybe in a pragmatic real world situation um in terms of um models of care for arthritis there's certainly been models of care proposed for knee pain for back pain uh and there are groups in australia that that do that now um and and again, we, we've been looking at models of care for back pain in particular, uh, and things like, uh, shifting, you know, ED instead of people coming to ED and being admitted, they get, they, they go straight to a physiotherapist clinic, for example. Um, so I think that there's a lot of potential, um, but we just have to be sure before we jump in and just change everything that it's still going to end up being value for money and improved or the same outcomes for patients and that it will also reduce the waste and the low value care. So so I'm I'm still waiting to see the evidence. Uh, so for exact I'll give you one example that I know of. So when we did our review we found that group antenatal care, so where you have groups of pregnant women together, that care would actually provide improved outcomes to the mothers. So they like it. They like that that being in a group and it was cheaper. Um, but there's no place in Australia that's doing it. And, and it probably is because individual care is more financially rewarding, perhaps. I, I don't, I mean, I'm not obviously not in that space, but that's an example where the model, um, with a different model would be actually better for the patient and cheaper, but we're not doing it in Australia. And that's just mm. one example that I know of. Yep. 
And so that's why the, the ideas around activity-based funding, which can obviously work very well in some parts of the healthcare sector and may drive um, outcomes or, or, I guess, system inefficiencies, which are not so good in other parts uh, for either patients or for the clinicians. I often mention on the pod the relationship between the social determinants of health and health outcomes. And, and I do wonder whether taking a value-based or taking other, uh, other approaches to our healthcare funding and our healthcare system uh, might allow us to better acknowledge that relationship between the social determinants of health and health outcomes. Issues particularly like housing, uh, contending with the challenge of poverty and looking at social security and financial support, we know these things have such a profound impact on health and well-being. Is it useful to reframe our debate around the health system through the lens of addressing the social determinants of health? Look, I, I absolutely believe we, we we need to think about this and the, I guess the, the current treasurer and talking about a wellness framework and while I don't claim to be any expert in the area, it, it certainly is. It sits well in terms of thinking about why we exist. You know, people don't seek out healthcare for the sake of healthcare. People seek out health. And if we come back to um, that as our reason for being and our system is there to support people to be healthy, um, it, it changes the way that you think about care. There's actually a concept called positive health um, that, we've, that we've written about in it. We did a Lancet series on back pain trying to show that there's so much low-value care there. And, and that's exactly what we were proposing, um, that, that we shift to, um, to a framework of positive health where um, people with back pain learn to self-manage themselves rather than relying on healthcare because we know that it doesn't help. Um, so, so I think that's something that might actually work, um, but we have to test it. So perhaps what we should do now is just touch briefly on the environmental sustainability issues. So the the two uh, areas that that are worth consideration as we restructure or reframe or rethink the healthcare sector during a period of crisis uh, is that relationship between the social determinants and the way in which we enjoy our lives, uh, and then the environmental sustainability. And so that's from a healthcare sector around reducing the carbon footprint of the healthcare sector, and also thinking our way through the impacts of the changing climate. When we're talking about low-value and no-value healthcare, Rochelle, are there issues around environmental sustainability that come up when we consider low-value, no-value healthcare? Uh, absolutely. In, in Australia, we know that 7% seven, 7 of the carbon footprint is due to healthcare, uh, and that's the same proportion as all of South Australia's carbon footprint. So that, that just shows you that it's a, a big part of the carbon footprint uh, and we know that uh, a lot of our healthcare um, is is low value as well. So so it's actually harming people and harming the environment for no or little benefit. So we we definitely need to join the low value no value um, conversation with environmental sustainability because even if we got rid of the the low value care, um, the 40% that we think is harmful or not, of no benefit, that's going to benefit the environment as well. Um, so there's things like nitrous oxide, certain anaesthetic gases that we know have huge carbon footprints. I mean, we can just do away with those straight away. And I'm sure Kylie will talk about the hospital side of things as well. 
Yeah, I guess I like to borrow from the um, the recycling um, slogan that they use in that we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing it imperfectly. Uh, and I think that's where we really need to embed it in everybody's business. Um, and that's what I'd be really interested in seeing. You know, some of this is about how do we as a system support making this easy for clinicians to do, which might be around how do we embed environmental considerations in our health technology assessments? How do we, you know, structure our hospitals so that the um and our you know our relationships between hospitals and primary health care to support people moving out of hospital where it's you know has that higher resource usage but it is also in the decisions that people are making every day and the conversations they're having um, and i see a lot of the opportunity in our national health reform agreement around health literacy which was what rochelle was also talking about about how do we help people to self-manage it, it starts well before people actually have a health condition that they need to manage um, how do we um, have those relationships at a local level that can consider some of these social determinants and actually build structures that focus a lot more on prevention it does strike me that putting the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff is a good spot for the ambulance, but may, maybe some of the hospital services should be at the top um, and we should be working much more actively on prevention as a way, again, of reducing the carbon footprint from the healthcare sector, along with reducing the low-value, no-value care. Kylie and Rochelle, it's been so wonderful speaking to the two of you today. I feel so optimistic and I'm filled with hope for ways in which we can uh, address the remarkable challenges that are faced in our healthcare sector at the current time. We often ask our guests at the end to perhaps offer their one favourite piece of advice. I know there's a lot of discussion happening in Canberra and elsewhere at the moment on, on how to tackle the challenges that are faced within healthcare in Australia. And if you were in an op given an opportunity to offer one piece of, of central advice, I wonder if you could share that with <laughs> us today. Rochelle, would you like to go first? <laughs> uh, I mean, my, my wish list would be to get rid of fee-based altogether uh, and just salary all of us because then I think we there would be no incentive for low-value care. We would we would only be doing high-value care. But I, I know that's probably an optimistic um, wish. I think it's a central piece of advice. We have to talk about money and finance here. Absolutely central. Great piece of advice. Kylie? Uh, I would say let's make it everybody's business and let's, um, I guess, centre people's uh, have a shared vision uh, around what we need to do um, and all work together on that. That's mm. fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that too. It's been great speaking to the two of you today. Thank you so much, Kylie Woolcock and Rochelle Bookbinder, for your time and your expertise, wisdom and kindness. Much appreciated. Thanks, Anna Greta. Thank you. That was a remarkable conversation with Rochelle Bookbinder and with Kylie Woolcock, looking at the challenge of low-value, no-value healthcare. When I speak with patients in clinical practice, I quite often refer to tests and procedures through two questions. One, how does this improve your quality of life? And two, how does this change life expectancy? These questions can be really complex and quite a lot of this comes down to establishing relationships between care providers and the patients that are looking for advice and assistance with a range of symptoms and concerns. It's a really challenging area and one an area in which there are often no hard and fast answers. 
If you're looking for further information regarding this, I, I do recommend choosing wisely.org.au as an organisation and a, as a resource to help answer further questions that you might find have arisen in your own life regarding the healthcare provision and the questions around the need for investigations and care. But I think today's conversation has been quite remarkable in fleshing out the way in which we could transform our healthcare sector from a system which really is around activity and doing things to people toward a system which is centred on outcomes, on, on patient quality of life and life expectancy when that's appropriate. I'm so grateful for the time that we've had today with Rochelle Bookbinder and with Kylie Wilcock. I very much look forward to continuing some of these conversations in the months ahead. So listeners, we'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in today's show notes. We love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or APPS Policy Forum. You can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net or you can join us on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. You just put that into the search bar and join our community of people discussing what's been happening with the Crawford School podcasts. We will, of course, be back next week. For now, from me, Anna Greta Hunter, I'll see you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.